our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 this morning, Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation. And as we're finding our way there, just a reminder on Sunday nights, we do go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, <clears throat> the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, is where we're studying presently. We won't finish it tonight. God willing, we'll finish it next week. And then the Lord's Supper, as was mentioned, is a part of the evening service. It is important for us as Christians to remember that that is a command. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So if it's been a little while since you've partaken of the Lord's Supper and sat and meditated and remembered Him in that way, uh, we'll be doing that this evening. And of course, you're most welcome to come. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this Bible. We thank you that it is a living book. And we thank you that the truths that are um, in this book will never return void. They will never, ever fail to be fulfilled the impact uh, to exhort or to encourage or to build up uh, that you have behind your word will always be accomplished in your people as we study it. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit today. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your concern for us. And thank you for your truth that means so much to us as your children in this supreme way in which you communicate to us. And so bless us now as we draw nigh to you in the study of your word, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that virtually all of chapters 10 through 14 constitute a parenthetical passage, a pause in the chronological progression of the revelation of the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments in order to fill in the blanks on some important issues. And so chapters 12 and 13 are a part of that parenthetical statement. And chapters 12 and 13, as we mentioned last time, deal with presenting to us seven very significant personages that have a part in the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 12 introduces us to five of them, uh, Israel, her child, uh, Satan, Michael the archangel, the remnant of Israel. Chapter 13, as we get into that next time, 
God willing, introduces us to the final two, and that is the Antichrist and the false prophet. Last time we limited our our, uh, looking at the five personages in chapter uh, 12 to uh, three of those personages, Israel, her child, uh, that is Jesus, and then uh, Satan. Today we'll uh, make Michael the archangel and Satan and the overcomers our our focus in completing uh, the chapter. Here we have a description of Satan. Ultimately, uh, he is going to be cast out of heaven and going to be cast to the earth uh, uh, one day. When you read this passage of him being cast out of heaven into the earth, it can raise a lot of questions in, in our mind, depending upon how familiar the Scriptures are to us. But one of the questions that a person might think very readily is, what in the world is Satan doing in heaven? I thought Satan was only in hell or only tempting on the earth. What in the world is he doing uh, in heaven? Why in the world does he have that kind of access uh, to heaven and to God? Why does God allow him that kind of, uh, of access? And uh, does he still have that access even to this day? And, and if he does have that access, how does he use his access to heaven and to God? Uh, for what means? And then when in the world does he get kicked out? Now, in these verses, we're given very, very important insights into this age-old rebellion of Satan against God and against God's authority. And without understanding something about that, I don't think, number one, you're not going to make any sense of the Bible at all. We're not going to make any sense of the book of Revelation. But I don't think anybody can make any sense of life at all in in this world without some understanding concerning this. We notice that this passage makes very, very clear. I'm going to talk about the devil for just a little bit. It's not the most exciting subject in the world, but it's what we're dealing with. I remember I was a new Christian and I turned on a TV show. It was a Christian television station and the guy got up and he was introducing like a 56-part series on the devil. So I'm not into knowing that much about him, but we do need to know something about, uh, uh, about him. So this passage makes very, very clear uh, the existence of Satan uh, and that he is not a, a mythical uh, kind of uh, symbol of evil, but that he is a literal and personal uh, being. I know there are many, many people in this world that are very, very content to live their lives uh, without even attempting to answer the question of what is the origin of evil in the human condition and, and in, in human history. And I know that there are a lot of people in the world that don't believe in a, a literal personal uh, devil. But if I'm going to take that position, I'm going to have a very, very hard time uh, explaining the origin and the existence of evil in in the human condition. And to live my life without asking the question or having an answer to the origin of evil uh, in man's history is to live a life with a massive void in my understanding. It's to live with an ignorance concerning life that I don't think any 
thinking person can actually live with. It's something that has to be wrestled with uh, for anyone that's trying to understand anything about the world that, that we find ourselves in. The Bible explains the origin of evil to have taken place in the sin of Satan and his rebellion against uh, God and against God's authority. The two principal places that we find out most about this fall of the devil is in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. And uh, Satan was uh, an anointed cherub at the time of his creation, an angelic being. Uh, he's described as being sinless, as being perfect, at the time that he was created, he was created with the fullness of wisdom, we're told, as Ezekiel does. We're also told that not only was he stunningly, jaw-droppingly uh, beautiful in his, his glory and his appearance, but that he remains that outwardly uh, even to this day. So never view him as this creature that's dressed in red leotards and and he's got a pitchfork and horns and all that kind of thing that uh, comes to so many people's uh, minds, or that he's some kind of a, a grotesque creature that it is, you know, writhing in darkness. That's what he turns people into, but that's not what he looks like. The Bible describes the day that one day when Satan is not only cast out of heaven, but ultimately cast into an eternal lake of fire, Gehenna, uh, which is created for the devil and for uh, the angels that followed him in his rebellion, that the people that are in Gehenna at that time when he comes into uh, that scene and when the devil is thrown ultimately in judgment into Gehenna, he does not go there to rule. He goes there as a participant. So never think, again, you see the cartoons, Farsight or whatever, bring back the Farsight or whatever they might be, where there he is and he's ruling in hell. He's not ruling in hell. He will be a participant in hell. The reaction of the inhabitants of hell at that time will <clears throat> look at him and they will be stunned at his beauty. And this, how this creature that is so beautiful outside granted such privileges from God, such wisdom uh, from God, and how he could end up being so inwardly uh, dark and evil. And at the time, the magnitude of his fall, how he could begin as the anointed cherub uh, standing before God, and, uh, and he could still be the anointed cherub before God today if he had not rebelled against God, and then here for all of his privileges that he ends up uh, in this judgment for eternity uh, with others in, in, in the horror of all of it. Isaiah brings it out in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16. Those who see you, speaking of the devil, will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. 
The position that he held in heaven is given to us in Ezekiel chapter 28. He is the anointed cherub who covers. It refers to the fact that he was a guardian cherub apparently and one of a select few of of the angelic beings that were given to guard the the holiness uh, of God in in heaven. Angels who had the closest access uh, to God. The book of Isaiah, chapter 14 again, reveals the reason that he fell from that, uh, that position that he was created to fill. He fell because of his pride. He fell because of his self-will. He fell because of his rebellion against God's authority. And you think about those devices that marked his life and how much they mark the life of, of anyone that rejects God today. Uh, and, and, and you see the same characteristics. How many people think that they uh, don't come to God because they're intellectually superior or they're intellectually more sophisticated than rubes like the rest of us, when in fact it is, uh, it is happening because of pride, it is happening because of self-will, I don't want to yield my will to anyone else, uh, even to God, and then also because of rebellion, uh, period. Rebellion against all authority. Rebellion against any rules, even the rules of God. And so these devices that we see the devil using so effectively to keep people from coming to God and coming to Christ, these are devices he's very familiar with. These are the things that were instrumental in, in his fall. Now, due to his rebellion at that time, Satan was cast down from his exalted position as the cherub who, who covers. Jesus spoke of it in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 returned to the Lord after being sent out in order to cast out demons, in order to heal people, in order to preach the gospel. They came back and they said, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus responded and said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Don't be so excited about having dominion over that, that realm. Uh, be thankful that your name is written uh, in the book of life. It is recorded in, in heaven. And so when, when Jesus talks about seeing Satan's fall, it is not this fall in Revelation chapter 12. It is Satan's fall uh, from his position uh, at, uh, at the very... Uh, beginning of the, uh, the initiation of his, his rebellion. His fall then introduced sin into God's world. It introduced sin into God's creation. And uh, he has already fallen by the time he appears on the scene in Revelation uh, chapter 3, I mean uh, Genesis chapter 3. He comes on the scene, he tempts Eve, then he tempts Adam, and uh, tempts them into the great fall that occurs for mankind uh, there, but he's already fallen. He's already taking the form of a serpent by the time he tempts them uh, in, in the garden. And so uh, all of the fallenness that occurs in the world today because of 
uh, of that temptation of Satan against Adam and Eve, and and all of the fallenness that has occurred as a result uh, of that, uh, all of the imperfection that exists in the world today, to say nothing of all of the evil in the world today, is all a result of the devil's temptation, uh, Adam and Eve uh, buying into his lies, and and then. Uh, falling from what God had created them to be. The Apostle John, he's referencing all of this in Revelation chapter 12, for instance, in verse 9, where he refers to Satan as the serpent of old. He's drawing our minds back to uh, the Garden uh, of Eden and the introduction here of evil uh, into the world in that way. Now, today here we are, we have this, we live in this world where we have to deal with the very miserable consequences of that, the fall of Adam and Eve. The whole world has fallen. Uh, we are all, all fallen. Adam and Eve had one uh, temptation. They had one command that was given to them in the garden, and that was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. One command. Only one temptation. You and I wake up every day in this world to more temptations to sin and opportunity to sin than can even be uh, listed at all. And so we can ask ourselves, why did God allow it? Why did God give Adam and Eve that lone prohibition uh, and to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why was Satan allowed to tempt them in the way that he was? Why did God ever offer Adam and Eve a choice, an opportunity to sin, an alternative to living an obedient life uh, to him? And there may be many, many reasons for uh, that that are unknown to us, but one reason God allowed all of that was in order to provide us, to provide mankind with a choice in a relationship uh, with God. And it is only because we have a choice, without a choice to love God or not love Him, a choice to obey Him or not obey Him, uh, then then we would be just these pre-programmed robots in this relationship with God. In other words, our, our, um, our love for God, our obedience to God would be meaningless uh, to Him. So someone once put it that it would be like one of those little dolls, and I don't know what they're, what they're doing with dolls today with the technology that they have, but the highest technology was having a, talk, a talking doll when I was a kid. And uh, so the girls would get this doll and it would, you'd pull it and the string and it would go back and it would say, Mommy, I love you. And uh, now, as meaningful as that might be to a little girl, that that doll is saying to that, there's something very wrong if I then went into her closet and then sat down and kept pulling the string uh, and having it say, I love you to me, and then somehow that being meaningful to me. And it, the doll is just completely pre-programmed to do that. It's all that, uh, that it can do. And, it, it, and uh, there's no personal free will involved, no other option, no choice involved. And without an attractive alternative on the table, 
then the choice that we make to obey God and to love God, it wouldn't be truly meaningful. It wouldn't be meaningful to Him. If I don't have to say no to something to say yes to Him, then it wouldn't be meaningful to Him and it wouldn't be meaningful to me in that relationship uh, with Him. And this commandment, this prohibition that was given to Adam and Eve gave man the opportunity to express genuine love toward God, genuine appreciation uh, toward uh, God, and to express those things in being obedient uh, to Him. Without a choice, man can be innocent, but he can never be righteous. In order to be righteous, it requires an opportunity to be unrighteous, and, and then to choose to do the right thing in the face uh, of that. It's important to realize as well that God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin long before He ever created the heavens and the earth, long before He ever created them. He knew they were going to botch that thing in the uh, Garden uh, of Eden. And we know that because He provided for their fall long before He created them. As we'll see next time in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, uh, it describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And, and yet God provided an opportunity to them to sin. He provided them with a choice. He provided them with that choice anyway. And you think to yourself, at least some of us do, why? Why take that immense risk knowing that what you know ahead of time is that it's going to go very, very badly. And the reason that God does it is because it's the only way a relationship can be authentic and meaningful with God. And God doesn't want any other relationship with man that, other than one that is authentic and is, is meaningful. And so you look at the world we live in now, post-fall, all of the temptations that hit us uh, all day, uh, every day. And we, and, and we can throw up our hands at just the sheer the power of them the, and the sheer number of them. But there's another way to look at those kind of temptations in, in life and just look at them as a, and see them as an opportunity to view all temptations in life as just providing me one more way to express my loyalty to God, my love for God, in, in obeying His commandments and in saying no to those things in order that my, I might say yes to Him. One more way to say to Him, I value my relationship with you more than I value uh, any sin that can be offered to me in the world. And it is those choices that make this relationship meaningful to God and meaningful to us as well. You notice that the passage also reveals to us what Satan does with his access uh, in, in heaven uh, presently. How he uses his access is to accuse us as Christians before God day and night. And uh, what does he accuse us of? He accuses us, us of the sins that we commit. But it isn't just a matter of saying, listen, Bob or John or whoever, Sally, committed this sin. 
It is with the idea that they committed this sin, and because they've committed this sin, they are no longer worthy of being uh, uh, objects of your love and of uh, your grace, of your care, and of your uh, concern. You're wasting your time in investing in this relationship and loving these people the way they, that you do when they treat you uh, uh, like this. And they bring, he brings that accusation uh, against us. And then you notice the frequency with which he brings the accusations against us. He does so day and night. Now, I would have rather have read in the passage that he could do all that accusing and uh, God gave him like a one-hour block in the afternoon, say between two and three. He could knock it all out. But he accuses us day and night. And why does he accuse us day and night? Because we sin day and night. No matter how hard we try not to sin, and we should, And no matter how much we grow into Christ-likeness in this life, every single day, every single one of us will fall short of the standard, the standard of Jesus in our thinking, in our doing, in our speaking, in our motivations, uh, in uh, in our love uh, toward people, in the sins of omission, the sins uh, of, of commission, we will fall short of, uh, of that, and, and He will bring then those accusations to God against us. But still, why is He given the access to accuse us? Because we know that these accusations get absolutely no traction. No traction. It all in heaven. So why does God let him do something that God knows isn't going to have any effectual result as a, as a result of what it is that he's doing? Well, I, I, I don't know all, all of the reasons or maybe any other reasons in some respects, but maybe it's just to frustrate him. It has to be very hard to be the devil. And to be up against God. Or or maybe he's allowed to bring all of these accusations uh, against us in order for uh, to demonstrate the power of Jesus' blood over our lives to him over and over and over again, all day and all night to constantly remind him of the defeat he suffered at Jesus' death upon the cross and in his burial and in his resurrection to constantly remind him that his accusations against any Christian, anyone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation, anyone whose sins have been washed away by his blood, all of those accusations are completely ineffectual. You say, how do you know they're ineffectual? couple of reasons why. The most, to me, the most beautiful picture of it is found in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 3. And it's a picture of this very scene. So you have, the, you have Joshua, the high priest at that time, and he is standing in a courtroom. The setting is a courtroom. He is the defendant in that courtroom. He doesn't merely represent himself as the high priest. He represents the entire nation of Israel at that time. 
you might remember that the children of Israel at that time, they had just recently returned from a 70-year captivity in Babylon because of their sin. And that before they went into that Babylonian captivity, they were out sinning the pagans. They were out sinning the Philistines and the Moabites and all of the other ites that were living around them at that time. And they were sinning against even greater light. They were sinning against a relationship with God, a history with God, against God's Word, against the prophets that God sent to them continually, calling on them to repent. In other words, when Joshua stands there and he represents the children of Israel, he is as guilty in that courtroom as you could ever be in a courtroom. Now, he also has in that courtroom an accuser, the devil, as he's portrayed there. And he is the prosecuting attorney. And the devil looks at this, and it's a case he cannot, absolutely cannot lose in his mind. This guy is so guilty, the nation is so guilty, they are so unworthy of God's grace, of God's goodness, of His blessings, of His caring one bit about them, of His plans to bring a Messiah into the world through them. And he lays his case out, and, and, and the case is absolutely uh, watertight. There is a judge in that courtroom, and the judge is is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate description of, of Jesus as the judge in that courtroom. And then something amazing happens in the dynamic of the defendant, of the prosecuting attorney, and then the judge, and then the defendant being absolutely guilty, and that is at one point in the trial, the judge takes off his robe and he abandons the bench and he comes down and he becomes the defense attorney for Joshua. Now, if you're ever in a courtroom where you are absolutely guilty as can be uh, and you're... And, and you, the, your defense attorney also happens to be the judge in the case, you can't win. I mean, you can't lose. And, and that's the exact scene that is, is described there. And when Satan comes and he brings an accusation against us in heaven, and it's watertight, it's all true what he, what he accuses us uh, of. But you've got God the Father in the the scene of the judge in the seat. And then you have the Son who is our advocate, who is our defense attorney, who is one with the Father. The devil has no hope of winning in that that courtroom. And that's that's the scene that unfolds continually when Satan endeavors to make these charges uh, stick Uh, to us. The defense attorney in the courtroom is also the judge, and that's an insurmountable uh, advantage. And he accuses us of our sins before the Father day and night. We are guilty, 
And, uh, but Jesus then steps forward and says, but that's the reason that I died upon the cross. They have put their faith in Me, the single greatest thing that any human being can do in the course of their life, and they are covered by My blood. My blood has washed away their sin and their guilt, not only related to the past, but the present and, and into the future. And it is the final word related to our lives. Now, sure, go ahead. We'll give him praise. Now, the Apostle John, who God used to write the Revelation, he puts it far more succinctly. But we would never appreciate how he puts it in two sentences if we didn't know that from Zechariah. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John didn't stop there. He goes into chapter 2, verse 1 of his first epistle, My little children, speaking to us as Christians, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's the scene that Satan is trying to get the charges to stick on in, in heaven. And it is a wonderful uh, hallelujah for that. It's important to realize that this passage here is not a record of uh, Satan's uh, defeat. It's a record of his being cast out of heaven. He is already defeated. He has been long defeated for 2,000 years in Jesus' death upon, uh, uh, upon the cross in order to provide us with the, the forgiveness of sins. Now this war in heaven that's described here, it's really not much of a war. You have Michael who is described in Jude verse 9 as an archangel, Michael the archangel, and his angels, the angels that kept their first estate, they very readily dispatch uh, Satan, out of that heavenly scene, and then also the demons that have aligned themselves uh, with him. And so it provides us with an important understanding that not only is Satan not greater than God, he can't be, he's a creation of God, and the creation is always lesser than the Creator, and infinitely lesser. He's not only not greater than God, he is not greater than Michael uh, the archangel. He's no match for him. Now, when Satan gets cast out of heaven, as you might uh, expect, all of heaven breaks into celebration. And verses, uh, verse 10, and then the early part of verse 12, there's this loud voice that comes forth, calls on all of heaven to rejoice at the event. This is deemed a, a very, very exciting news in heaven. And, and when he's cast out, uh, he will never again be able to, to bring an accusation uh, against us in, in that heavenly scene. And when you read in verse 10, this praise of uh, God's salvation, His strength, His kingdom, His power. It communicates that this event of casting Satan out of heaven is just one more step in Jesus uh, taking possession of what He's already purchased unto Himself in His death upon the cross, His burial, and His resurrection of the earth, of the creation, 
and, uh, and ultimately culminated in the creation of a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And then finally in verse 11, we come to this uh, group that are referred to as the overcomers. And uh, in verse 11, rather there, it informs us that not only will Satan suffer defeat at the hands of Michael the archangel, but also uh, by how he is overcome by individual Christians as well. By tribulation saints that are forced to resist him in all of his strength during the tribulation period. During the tribulation period, think of it as Satan is now cast out of heaven. The woe is given there in verse 12 to the earth. He is cast out of heaven. He is coming your way in his fullness. And he is very, very upset over this. He knows his time is short. There is going to be a demonic oppression and atmosphere to the world during the tribulation period that the world has never known before. And yet there will be overcomers in that environment. Overcomers related to all of his temptations, all of his attempts to condemn, all, all of his uh, uh, darkness that he brings to try and, and destroy. And the idea being that if there are overcomers in the great tribulation period, these tribulation saints... And there are. And if the characteristics of these overcomers uh, steady them on successfully in the great tribulation period, then these same things will uh, characterize being an overcomer even in this age prior to the tribulation period. If they will work there, they will work um, anywhere. Uh, in, in, in the world and in, in any Christian today. You notice in verse 11, he gives us three characteristics of an overcomer in this great a kind of cosmic battle between the devil and, and, and God until God brings it to an end. And, and we're told, first we overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb refers to Jesus' death upon the cross for the forgiveness of of our sins. And you notice that when John writes of Jesus here, he does not say by the blood of Jesus, though he is referring to Jesus. He pointedly writes by the blood of the Lamb. And he speaks deliberately of Jesus as the Lamb. And when he does so, he's using Old Testament imagery and he's emphasizing the substitutionary work of Jesus upon the cross related to his death. In the Old Testament, they had a sin offering. And it was a type or a picture of Jesus who would one day come into the world as our sin offering. And what it involved is an individual who had sinned would bring a lamb to the temple that would be offered now uh, in, uh, in order to provide the forgiveness uh, of his or her uh, sin. They'd bring a lamb, had to be without blemish, they'd bring it to the priest. 
They would then lay their hand on the head of the innocent lamb. It was a picture of substitution. The transference of the sin of the guilty to the innocent sacrifice. And as they looked at that animal, they knew that that animal was going to die in their place for their sin. And what John does here in in Revelation chapter 12 is Jesus is presented here as having died on the cross as our substitute. That is, when, that when God forgave our past sins, and when He continues to forgive our present sins, nobody's getting away with anything. This forgiveness that He extends does not happen in a vacuum. It isn't God saying to us, oh, forget about it, it, it was nothing. It is something. We are not to put have a confidence in our forgiveness based upon nothing, or to have a confidence in our forgiveness based upon some positive mental thought that God has provided to us. Our confidence for the forgiveness of our sins is based upon the immensity of that sacrifice, of that Son of God, upon that cross, the reality of that, and, and that event, historical event, in human history. And our sin is not put up in God forgiving us. It is not put up against some disconnected theological thought. It is put up against that sacrifice. And so from the perspective of heaven, Satan's accusations against us are not viewed supremely about him and us. They are viewed as accusations and attacks upon the cross, upon the blood of Jesus Christ that has provided us with the forgiveness of our sins and and an attack upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is imputed to us by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. These accusations are an affront to God in heaven because they are an attack upon the sacrifice that was made to provide us with our forgiveness. And if heaven views the accusations of the devil against us in that way, not supremely as an attack upon us, but an attack upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we ought to do the same thing. And to realize that when Satan comes against us in all of his condemnation, that yes, and it's attack against us, it's an attack against the wrong that we have done. But the picture is bigger than that for us as Christians. It is an attack upon what Christ has done for us on the cross. And when we realize that, we will not stand before the devil in his accusations and try to give excuses for why we were in the wrong place at the wrong time and why uh, when I grew up they raised me this way and all of these different things or self-righteousness or in trying to justify uh, myself before him. When I realize that this is supremely an attack of his upon Jesus, I will refer him to my advocate. I will look and say to myself, the accusations that he is bringing against me 
they condemn me. I have no answer uh, for them. But I, I am not responsible to bring an, an, an answer or a justification for them or a solution to them in and of myself and to refer him to the courtroom that he can never win a case in and to say, I am forgiven of my sins. Now, past, future sins, and you're going to have to take this up with my advocate. Why have a defense attorney that can never lose a case if I'm always arguing my case? If I never refer Satan and his accusations to the one he has no hope of of winning against, and yet I'm prone to. And I have a lot of things in my life, just like anybody else, and uh, things that I'm ashamed of. Sins in my life that I wish I had never done. And so he comes and there'll be the accusation. I don't know if it's just my flesh in in whatever mood I'm in or whatever. Or he attacks me and I'm immediately filled with shame over who I was and what I did in that that situation. It's something that we we all uh, all feel as as sinners. And when he comes against us related uh, to that... And, and, uh, and we have to refer him back to the one who can never lose a case. You're absolutely right. I am guilty of this. I was guilty of it. But I've been forgiven because of Jesus Christ. And I refer you to my attorney on this issue. And then go on about my life. What's in danger here? The danger is never that Satan's accusations against us will ever get traction in heaven. There is no danger of that. The danger is whether when he attacks us individually with those same accusations and we then try to defend ourselves rather than referring him to the advocate, referring him uh, to Jesus. So when we sin and we do sin, what do we do? And, 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 and we've sinned in the past, we've sinned today, we'll sin until we're in heaven. And so what should we do when we do? We confess our sin to God and we ask for His forgiveness. And I don't think you can beat uh, J. Vernon McGee's uh, observation related to this, that when he sins and he becomes aware of it, he likes to confess it before it gets accused, before the throne of God. Uh, before the devil can even bring the accusation, put the file together and file the charges. And that's how to, to live current with God in that way. So we confess our sin to God and ask for forgiveness. And then we consciously receive uh, God's forgiveness and we thank Him uh, for it. We repent of the sin and we want every sin that we commit to be a teachable moment for us as well. To say, Lord, I... I missed the mark there. And and so, what boundaries do I have to set up in my life so I don't find myself in exactly that circumstance uh, again? And so, to learn from that and then to commit all of the condemning accusations of the devil uh, that might occur as a result of my sin uh, to Jesus. And then to just rejoice in the forgiveness that is uh, given to us. And, and His forgiveness, when He forgives us of what He's forgiven us of, it makes, it's not going to make a bigger sin out, sinner out of me. 
is going to make me so thankful for His grace and for His love uh, that it will provide an even greater motivation in my life not to do those things again and, and to, to walk in His holiness. You notice second, we be, uh, overcome Satan by the word of our testimony. Some of you are very anxious at the moment that I just said the second of three at this point in, in the sermon. These are relatively brief by comparison. So second, we overcome Satan by the word of our testimony. What is the word of our testimony? A, te- a testimony to what? That there was a moment in time in my personal history when I repented of my sin, I put my faith in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sins, I was born again, I experienced a spiritual birth that brought me into a relationship with God. And and the word of my testimony is to walk in the confidence and the recognition that as a result of my faith in Jesus, I am eternally saved and everything that Jesus shed His blood to accomplish in my uh, life is, is going to be accomplished in my life. They are mine now. So that if anyone asks me if I'm saved, I can boldly say yes. And then if they ask me the second question, how do you know that you are saved? I can tell them through faith in Jesus by the grace of God. And that is the word of our testimony. And then third, we overcome Satan by not loving our lives to the death. And here we have the Christian who has a martyr's mindset in terms of their, uh, our commitment to to Jesus and His call upon our lives. And it's a commitment that says, by the grace of God, I am committed to following and serving Jesus, even if it means death. I will not deny Him. I will not deny the Gospel. I will not deny His truth. I will, whatever the threat of the world or the devil may bring against me, even the threat of death, I would rather die than deny those things, who He is and what He has brought into my life. And that is the mindset and the commitment of an overcomer. And you think about this where you talk about, as it, as it describes here, that they love not their lives to the death. That will be the condition of every single tribulation saint. The overwhelming majority of them will die for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. This is the portion, this is the commitment that is required to walk with Christ among vast portions of Christians all around the world today who live in places of oppression and active persecution uh, against uh, Christians. And of course, self-preservation is a very, very strong uh, uh, instinct. And most people will choose self-preservation over everything else when it comes to push comes to shove, and the devil knows it. And you know how we know he knows it? Because he communicated it to God in his endeavor to, uh, to tempt Job in the Old Testament. And from long experience with mankind, he charged Job uh, before God. In Job chapter 1, Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. 
but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you uh, to your face. People will do anything to survive, and they will abandon you when they are he's saying to God, they will abandon you when they are put in that place. And in Job, the devil met an overcomer. He met someone for whom, however true his assessment of mankind as a whole, it was not true of Job. And it's not true uh, uh, of many, many others as well. And when a Christian settles the issue of Jesus' lordship in our life, and that we will love Him, we will serve Him, we will worship Him, even if it means our death, what it does is it takes the fear of death out of the hands of the devil as a means of trying to manipulate or a means of trying to uh, uh, tempt us and to use it against us. How effective can he be in trying to overcome a Christian who is willing to die rather than deny their faith or abandon their relationship with Jesus Christ? For whom, uh, the, the person for whom uh, physical survival is not the most important thing in their life, but to walk with the Lord and to serve Him. The Apostle Paul put this mindset perfectly, and it's one he possessed in his letter to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he wrote, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here you have, yes, the world will one day be demonically oppressed in a way that we can't even begin to understand at this point in time. But the world is demonically oppressed uh, now. Uh, the passage tells us that Satan deceives the entire world. And yet here we learn how we can be engaged in this uh, great battle, in this great warfare victoriously as a Christian to rest in the blood of the Lamb and the knowledge that we have been forgiven of our sins and God will forgive us of every sin going forward. To remember our testimony that we are saved. We were saved at a moment in time in, in terms of our history in this world and that that salvation is sure and it's secure and it is not in play related to anything the devil may try to do to us or how he may try to tempt us. And then the third characteristic is loving God and His will for our lives more than anything else in this world. And those are the three things that will be required for Christians to be an overcomer in the tribulation period, but they're also required um, to this day, this present day in the world. And what a wonderful, wonderful recipe that is given to us there in verse 11. 
that as these things mark our lives, we will always be an overcomer in the face of Satan's uh, temptations because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin a relationship with God, the relationship that you have been created for. There is no sin that is greater than the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The old saying is, there's none who are so bad they can't be saved, and none who are so good uh, they needn't be saved. That covers all of us. So come forward and receive God's forgiveness. And on top of it, everlasting life. Begin a relationship with God today. Allow Him to bring a new nature into your life and a whole new way of living. So many things He wants to do for you. And it's all just a prayer away. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You as we live in this world that is so full of Satan's lies and his deceptions and all of his temptations that You have provided us with an overcoming uh, life. The ability to overcome Him. And we thank You this morning for our salvation, Lord. We thank You for our testimony. And we thank You for the work of Your Holy Spirit in our lives that has brought us to a place where we treasure our relationship with You more than anything else in life and more than life itself. Thank You, Lord, for the overcoming life. Thank You for providing it to us. Thinking of everything and the giving of Your Son for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank You, Lord, in His name. In Jesus' name. Amen.